The following program has words that were once banned in Boston, as they say. No, not Bucky Dent or Manhattan clam chowder. Much worse words than that. It's Monday, August 31st, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hey, is it okay if I do care about the Hatch Act? Insofar as it is an act, which, when passed, became a law, and the White House violated the law. I know we're not supposed to care because, you know, triage, precedent, and it just simply isn't done. The idea being that people should be elected on their public service, not their political service. But in 1993, the act was, well, loosened somewhat so that it gave government employees a little more speech rights and involvement rights. Still, some offices are more restricted than others. The FBI, for example, is much more restricted than, say, the president and the vice president, because the FBI were much more concerned, apparently, about them being impartial than we are about the president and the vice president. But the reality is the Hatch Act rarely enforced and even more rarely prosecuted. That was Danny Savalos on MSNBC. True, but sad. Here's my case for caring about the fact that the administration clearly violated the law in the four days of the RNC. And I know it's passed, it's days ago, although the law has a statute of limitations more than a week, unlike our national consciousness. But my case for caring that the president's administration violated the law is that the president's administration violated the law. I'm not even talking about the president himself or the vice president himself, and there are exceptions in the Hatch Act for statements they make. I'm not talking about them using the White House as a backdrop necessarily. What I'm talking about is that everyone else who was featured all over the RNC was being paid money by you and me, the taxpayers, paid money to do their jobs, but to take those jobs and to turn them and their workplace into a campaign. This is ongoing. And a few months ago, a reporter asked White House spokesperson Kaylee McEnany, is there any part of the job or the White House that the president won't politicize? McEnany, quite superciliously, dismissed that and said, no, 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 it wasn't a Hatch Act violation because of what the Hatch Act says. And she quoted the Hatch Act. We act in accordance with the Hatch Act. It's well established that the president and vice president are not subject to the Hatch Act. It says this much in the Hatch Act. Uh, it says that the Hatch Act applies to executive branch employees, which is defined uh, in the Hatch Act as employee, meaning any individual other than the president and the vice president. So you, so you, Kaylee McEnany, you who spoke at the RNC, that definition you used to extricate yourself a month ago implicates you right now and Pompeo, and Conway, and Chad Wolf, who conducted a swearing-in ceremony, though Chad Wolf might have a better defense for why he didn't violate a law about a federal employee using his office to campaign. And that defense is that there is a lot of compelling evidence from the GAO, in fact, that Chad Wolf should not actually be in office. He should not be running the Department of Homeland Security because he is serving in violation of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. But if a clear and unambiguous violation of the Hatch Act can be yada yada yada, a violation of the Federal Vacancies Reform Act certainly will be poo-pooed and pishawed. Sorry, new citizens who are sworn in, your ceremony was both a prop and improper. The reason why I find the bandwidth to care about the Hatch Act, <laughs> what, what an indulgence actually caring about the Hatch Act, is this. 
is that the RNC really didn't take up a lot of my attention. And I watched every bit of it, every bit of it. Weird vacation, I know. But the president was boring. The vice president was boring. Tertiary figures in the Trump orbit were maybe a little bit better. They yelled a lot. Dana White attempted the verbal submission hold. And Kimberly Guilfoyle believed herself to embody the idea, oh, you're all thinking it. I'm just the one who's brave enough to screech it. I know it's pretty sexist of me to police a woman's ambulance siren Claxton-like call. They want to steal your liberty, your freedom. They want to control what you see and think and believe so that they can control how you live. Yes, of course, I only found that off-putting because of the male gaze or whatever the audio equivalent of a gaze is. I think it's a bleeding eardrum. This was my favorite part of her speech. Human sex drug traffickers should not be allowed to cross our border. Human sex drug traffickers, so sex drugs. What's that, amyl nitrite? Roofies? Anyway, I'm grasping for something interesting to take out of the RNC, something different. A piece of content that was so new and alarming and arresting and surprising that we just have to concentrate on it with laser-like focus. And that we can let slide as a secondary consideration, the illegal forum in which it was argued. But there was nothing like that at the RNC. The entirety of the content was so blandly alarmist, so predictably dire, that it freed me up to say, hey, let's think about the Hatch Act. The Hatch Act is a law that was violated, and given the choice between letting the president violate laws and not caring, and at least saying, you know, the president should clearly not be violating the law, I don't see very many strong arguments for the former. Now, perhaps you think I've gone on too long, however legally, in this forum that is no way provided by you, the taxpayer, but I do want to take a little more time to amend one thing that I did say. So before I said that the administration yada, yada, yada claims of Hatch Act skullduggery, in fact, they do not yada, yada, yada it, they blah, blah, blah it. Kellyanne Conway, a little while ago, when asked about previous Hatch Act violations said, and I quote, blah, 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 great If you're trying to silence me through the Hatch Act, it's not going to work. Let me know when the jail sentence starts. Oh, we've been living through it since January of 17. But I see that you, Kellyanne, have just applied for parole. On the show today, Trump creates the chaos. Yes, yes, he does. But I explain why it's wrong to instantly assume that he'll be the beneficiary of it. But first, the Disney show Phineas and Ferb ran for seven years and told the daily adventures of our two titular characters as they battled space monsters, secret agents, and of course, the evil Professor Doofenshmirtz. Disney Plus is now airing a Phineas and Ferb movie about their sister, Candace, being against the universe. The creators of this wacky and clever series, Dan Povenmire and Jeff Swampy Marsh, join me next. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morf. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. 
So there are 104 days of summer vacation, though this year, I don't know, school's been out since March in most places and uh, isn't opening up again. But that is, of course, a reference to the theme song to Phineas and Ferb, which is, for my money, uh, the funniest show, maybe the most, I don't know if it's underrated, but you'll often hear people lay claim to SpongeBob SquarePants being the most hysterical cartoon show for kids that's really for adults. No, I say Phineas and Ferb. It's creative. It's about two kids who create contraptions and almost always get busted by their sister Candace until it never works out in the end. Well, Phineas and Ferb was on the air for over a decade, and the last uh, official episode ended in 2015. But there was a special and there was a crossover show, and now there is a film on Disney+. Plus. Phineas and Ferb, the movie, Candace against the universe, the creators and executive producers of Phineas and Ferb, Dan Povenmire and Jeff Swampy Marsh are here. Thanks for joining me, guys. Hey, oh, hey. great to be here. Very, very glad to be here. So if people don't know, there, this show has a lot of um, tropes, I guess, or rules. And in comedy, there are great benefits to that, you know, gags that you can always go back on, but also a structure that you can play with. So if listeners of my show don't always know, Ferb basically says... One thing a show? Usually something pithy and poignant, although often nonsensical and random. And strategizing that out. So in the script, are you like, okay, no, that's the furb line. No, that's the furb yeah, line. Yeah, yeah. We'll say, okay, what's the furb line? You know, there's a bunch of things that happen in most show. You know, there's always a song. So we'll write the story and then say, what will the song be in this? It'll, it should be here. It should be about this. What's furb going to say? What, you know, what is the, what is Doofenshmirtz building? There's a bunch of places we're going to put stuff. And it gives us this nice structure to just hang comedy on, like this house structure. And the house looks different all the time, but the bones are, are the same. You know, it's, it's like we just have a bunch of places to put gags that way. And, uh, and I think people start looking forward to it. When we decided to have Ferb just have one line per episode, we were thinking, you know, what'll be great is that people will start looking for that line and looking forward to that line and making lists of the things he says. Sure enough, there's a whole page in Wiki that has what Ferb says in every single episode. Like, so if we, we ever want to find out what it is, it's easier for us to look up stuff about the show on Wiki than to go through our own, you know, archives. Have you ever started off from the Ferb line out? I've got a great Ferb line. Let's build an episode around that. That sounds like something one of our writers, Martin Olson, would do. Yeah, I don't <laughs> remember whether we did that. That sounds like something we would do. It does but sound I honestly like don't remember us, uh, us starting with a Ferb line. And, and if we didn't, then it's a darn shame because that's a good idea. <laughs> then again, I, I'm sure someone said, no, just do the all Furbline movie or the all Furbline episode. But that's like, I remember Captain Crunch had the all Crunchberry cereal and it was just such an indulgence. Yes. It was wrong. It was wrong. It was wrong. I think Crunchberries, <laughs> a little Crunchberries goes a long way. And I think it's sort of the same with Ferb. We did have an idea for this movie earlier that was sort of this weird departure from their usual reality in which Ferb was going to talk a lot. And we may still do mm -hmm. that movie at some point. We were looking at it like, it would be weird to have Ferb talk this much, don't you think? <laughs> it was like, well, 
that that might be why people like this episode. So in the movie, is he allowed to have more than one line? Oh, yeah. You know, he just talks about once every 11 minutes is what we've, we've sort of decided, you know. Uh, so if you're going yeah. for, for a full two hours, he's going to get a couple quips in. Was plotting the movie or uh, adhering to three-act structure a particular challenge just because you've done, you know, so many so many dozens, over 100 episodes of your certain structure, and then when you graft it onto the larger form, it's not just, you You just can't take one episode and multiply by five. No, you, you, have, to, you have to tell a movie story, but to me, that's a little luxurious. You know, we don't have to try to fit everything into 11 minutes. We can take our time and and we can we can fill stuff with fun and still get that structure. And the thing that's always interesting when you do a do a movie is when you're doing an 11 minutes, you can do an edit and then watch the whole 11 minute and then do an edit, do some more edits, you know, the next day and then watch the whole 11 minutes. If it takes you 80 minutes to watch something, you're not going to watch the whole thing on as regular a basis. And you'll work on individual sections of it. And then, you know, every two or three weeks, you have a screening where you see the whole thing at once. And suddenly you'll realize, oh, it's dying here, which looks fine on, on its own. This, this, you know, half hour here is great if you just watch that half hour. But the energy of the flow really comes from watching it as a whole. So you try to have as many of those screenings as you can. And when that happens, it's really magic. But it's a lot. It's a very different animal than doing 11 minutes. So Candace is now a titular character. And I was wondering, you know, at the time, I guess you were conceiving of this or making it, the word gaslighting became very popular in the culture. And Candace is to an extent gaslit every episode because the thing that she absolutely sees in the end, she doesn't get credit for seeing. And I was wondering if anything going on with uh, the way women have been lied to and gaslit at all inspired you to center her in this movie. Now we were... I think we were more inspired by Jennifer Gray's character in uh, in Ferris Bueller. <laughs> yeah, where she's right. just trying to get people to see stuff and she's getting too into the fairness of everyone should know that Ferris Bueller is doing this. And that was sort of our blueprint for Candace was she's not trying to hurt the boys. She's just trying to get mom to see what it is that they're doing. They're not even trying to get mom not to see it. They would love if mom saw their stuff. They're very proud of what they do. I don't think she feels like she's being gaslit by her brothers at all because they have even tried to help her get mom to see the stuff that they do. Yeah, there's no ill intent on their part, for sure. It's just that, as you say, the universe conspires against her. So you guys started out, am I right, as, what's the term, background artists or layout artists on The Simpsons? Well, I was doing character layout and he was doing background layout, which means that uh, the character layout is just all the key poses of the characters and background layout is is figuring out the whole background so it works with those key poses. And it means that I have Mm -hmm. drawn the the inside of the Simpsons kitchens enough to drive a normal man insane. Yes. Is there anything, so you have a real kitchen and maybe know a little bit about architecture. Is there anything that wouldn't work or is illogical with the Simpsons kitchen? Uh, The kitchen's fine. It's the way all the rooms connect, which actually doesn't work. And it also changes from episode to episode. Yeah. Even though they have a full, (laughs) they have a full house plan for us to go by, but they also say, if you need this room to be right next to this room, 
for a joke, just put them right next. You know, it's it's like stuff gets moved constantly. Oh, wow. Is there any of that going on in Phineas oh, yeah. and Ferb? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that house doesn't really function the way it's supposed to, but it does for our purposes. Yeah, and we, uh, same as The Simpsons, we had a whole house plan for it so people would know where things were, but we said the exact same thing. Don't get so into making this this house a reality that you lose a gag because, oh, I, this gag only works if this door is next to the bathroom. Anything is forgettable if you can make a, a laugh out of it. People are obsessive about the show. And if there is an inconsistency, especially with The Simpsons from years to years, I mean, famously, I think Rod and Todd got flipped once. But everyone will notice you said that you had a second cousin in one episode and she became your third cousin eight years later. But do people, I'm just wondering if people notice that actual physical layout stuff they, as much. If they that's don't. something that strikes their brain. Yeah, yeah I, I think they don't because people are not usually that detail-oriented. There, there may be people out there who have but they've not asked us those questions at Comic-Con yet. Mind you. Ask things yeah. like, what was the one that somebody completely busted us on in, in oh, the they, LA they, Times they, talk? We, we had said Candace was uh, lactose, lactose intolerant. And then yes. in another episode, we said that uh, her favorite uh, cheese was sandwich was a melted cheese sandwich. Toasted and cheese. somebody <laughs> asked us that. <laughs> little uh, girl with the sweetest little voice who yes. stood up at the microphone <laughs> to ask us this question. We just had that moment of, Oh yeah, it's so busted. And we just so <laughs> we, we just laughed because we had literally never thought of that and realized because we're usually pretty good about the canon of the show, but neither of us had realized that at all. And we just laughed at each other. And then I said, "It's soy cheese is the is the kind of sandwich she likes." <laughs> good save, good save. It was, a, it was a good save, but she had, she had caught us completely off guard. It was very funny. I do think there's something, though, that maybe is an insight into that, which is that you guys are doing what's called world building, but people and people think that they're or they are compelled by it. But what they're really compelled by and what we're always compelled by are people, are the characters. So if you build the characters and they seem real, those will be so real to fans and the actual literal building of the world. uh, That's much, much less. Yes, exactly. People relate to the characters more than they relate to the backgrounds. But but we always tried to make the backgrounds in Phineas feel for the most part like like a real place. You know, it, yes. so that you know like a real normal place so that that when these crazy things happen then they seem crazier because because you know it's it's like we wanted Phineas and Ferb to be the special things. Then you know and, and sometimes we'd pull the writers back on weird stuff happening elsewhere in Danville because we're like, no, we want Danville to be sort of a normal every, every town. Yeah. Freaky stuff happening in a freaky place isn't interesting, but all the crazy, wonderful stuff they do happening in a very normal setting is much better. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And that is, I I think that's uh, very important in in cartoon history. I mean, from, from Springfield to literally Bedrock, yes. which is the Bedrock uh, town and th- the most iconic of the cartoon, primetime cartoon towns. Yeah, and that's also how comedy plays, right? Comedy plays better when you have very strict and realistic uh, walls to bounce yes, off Yes, exactly. Of. So with this movie, 
was the impetus that there were things left to say or was the impetus more of a chance to kind of get the old gang back together and have a larger canvas to say it? A bit of both. It was great getting the old gang back together, but I think we also found a story that we or told a story in a way that we hadn't before. Yeah, we, we had never really told a story that was where the story was actually driven by Jeopardy. You know, we we had like you know mm-hmm. like Phineas and Ferb got into some Jeopardy in a couple of the hour long specials and the and the original movie, but they but the story was being driven like how they got there was them trying to do something spectacular, and this one we were the, they actually go on this adventure because Candace gets taken away by aliens and they have to rescue her. It's a different type of story than we ever told with the characters, and then getting to have Doofenshmirtz and the kids all get together and work together as a team was something we had never really been able to do uh, also. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, it presented its own problems. What do you do with Perry the platypus? How do you keep him alive in it? You you know, like he's everybody's favorite. We need to make sure that he's a featured role in this movie. So that, that was fun. In originally creating the character of the platypus, who's also a secret agent, was that early on in the process, yeah. or did you in, you did that was that was fundamental to the creation of Phineas and Ferb? It was like the third or fourth drawing I did. Uh, I sketched Phineas on a on some butcher paper at a at a, at a restaurant on a butcher paper tablecloth and tore it off and brought it home and I drew uh, Ferb and. Perry and Doofenshmirtz that night and brought it into work the next day and Swampy and I sort of created the whole show around those characters. So what about the pitching of the series as to who would get the jokes or what age group? I mean, you guys have worked on The Simpsons and The Family Guy, and I suppose with those shows, it's what the writers thought was funny. Is it the same thing or do you have to have a little extra cognition about, you know, it is a kid's show? Our only rule was that if the kid didn't get it and the adult in the room laughed, the conversation about why that adult laughed could not be an uncomfortable conversation. So we didn't do, oh, okay, we didn't do double entendre sexual innuendo. We didn't do mean jokes. We didn't do shocking, disgusting jokes. We basically said when one of those would get pitched, we'd laugh in the room and then we'd go, okay, but what can we do that's that same shape and gives us that laugh, but is smarter than that w- without going for the cheap laugh. Right. Yeah, we'd fight to keep in a joke about existential philosophy. Yes, because it's because, hard. <laughs> yes, exactly. We don't. We we didn't want to dumb it down for kids ever. We we, we always felt like we can aim at the you know, the adult in the room. And there was one executive first season who gave us a note that said, "Okay, that joke is funny, but is our audience even going to get it?" And I said, I don't mm-hmm. care. There's another joke coming <laughs> for your audience in five seconds. Trust me, as long as this joke does not make your audience turn the channel, I don't care if they get it. They would learn something new because they would be interested to check and see why. Or they'd have a conversation with their parent or grandparent who laughed at the joke. Yeah. Or they'd learn comedy, which, you know, your show very much helps my kids learn comedy and learn timing. And they assume if it's in the show, it's funny. And then they sometimes retroactively figure out why it's funny. Not a bad thing. We get people who say they love the show and we find out that they don't have kids at all. Or the number of parents that say, yeah, I was watching it with my kids and they had to go to bed and 
My wife and I kept watching it. It's like, well, we just made it for ourselves and we just didn't do anything that we thought would be offensive. That's how we got uh, Damon Lindelof, who created uh, Lost, to come and write an episode with us because we, we ran into him at Comic-Con and he was telling us that, that he and his wife would stay up late and watch Phineas and Ferb after his kid had gone to sleep. And we're like, you want to come write an episode? We can pay you almost nothing. <laughs> he was like, that's exactly <laughs> what I want to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought you were going to say, and he admitted he only had a kid to justify yes, his exactly. watching of Phineas and In fact, and we Ferb. only had a child so that people would stop looking at us strange when we talked about <laughs> Phineas and Ferb. <laughs> Phineas and Ferb, the movie, Candace Against the Universe. It's a Disney Plus jam and the creators of that show, Jeff Swampy Marsh and Dan Provenmeyer, were here to talk about their iconic creation. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. This was great. And now the spiel. We have seen him and beheld his ways. The ancients had different names for him. To the Norse, he was Loki. To the Japanese, Amatsu Mikaboshi, a once malevolent Shinto god, who threatened disorder. Today, we call him Trump, and we know that means chaos. Jeb Bush said so before a single vote was ever cast. Donald, you know, is great at at the uh, one-liners, but he's a chaos candidate, and he'd be a chaos president. Four years and eight months or so later, Trump advisor Kellyanne Conway said this. The more chaos and anarchy and vandalism and violence reigns, the better it is for the very clear choice on who's best on public safety and law and order. The chaos candidate, the chaos president, that is his brand, that is how he governs to the extent that he does govern, which is not to say very much at all. Donald Trump sows chaos via both inattention and his explicit intention. But I want to inject another thought, a contrary thought to that self-evident observation. Because it is, after all, an observation that the entire election could hinge on, and here it is. Donald Trump might sow chaos, but it is less than clear that he reaps it. I understand the lore of assuming Trump benefits from chaos. It's a way to explain the success of a man by a class of observers, myself included, who not only despair, but to some extent disbelieve what they're seeing. With a Putin or a, I don't know, Pablo Escobar, there's a ruthlessness, but also a cunning. Trump, on the other hand, is less dastardly than thuggish. Think about the nuances of those words. The better word for his actions than criminal is lawless. All of those terms are pejorative, and the pejorative rightly attends to Trump, but they all tend toward disorder over order. So it's tempting to say that he uses the chaos. But does he truly reap the chaos? Does he harvest it? Does he always use it for his own purposes? I'm not so sure. For one thing, the more things spin out of control, the more they hurt Trump's standing with party stalwarts and Republican voters. In Charlottesville, chaos rained down, Trump weighed in, and to poor effect, he was hurt by those statements. Advisors quit. The public soured on him. Trump targeted protesters once more outside Lafayette Square, pepper sprayed them for a photo op. The public did not respond in kind or with kindness. They chafed. So it might seem like all he does is throw sand in the eyes of opponents. But what does he do with the distraction once gained? 
I think the creation of chaos is often, maybe almost always, less a strategy than a spasm. And it's unclear if he would actually be better off without the chaos. You might say, well, without the chaos, he wouldn't be Donald Trump. That's true. But is Donald Trump a guy who prospers from chaos or a guy who has prospered and has done so with chaos swirling around him? And the prosperity is not because of the chaos. It's because of all his built-in advantages. The presence of chaos just is a convenient demarcation for where he squandered many of those advantages. Donald Trump made a lot of money from his inheritance and his force of will and his creating a perception of value. But mostly, the things that have put cash in his pocket have been putting his names on property that are perceived to have delivered to a certain kind of person, a certain kind of value, right? His buildings have, in fact, made money. Some of his golf courses have made money, and his TV show paid very well. Now, the buildings haven't fallen down. The TV show didn't shut down over disputes. Some TV shows do. The golf courses, they maintain the lawns. They look nice. No infestation of cicadas. Chaos didn't help him with the parts of his portfolio that we can prove have been profitable. When Trump's businesses fail, as with Trump University or his casinos, he creates chaos around the failure with lawsuits or the time his father tried to loan him money via a massive chip buy. But those gambits didn't work. Trump uses chaos as a distractionary device, or maybe you could just say he lies so much and sues so much and fights so much and hires Michael Cohen to fix so much that chaos is created. But does chaos help him? Let's take Michael Cohen. Sometimes a bumbler, sometimes a goon, but sometimes an actual fixer who has fixed things. He fixed the problems of assignations with porn stars or playboy models, and he did fix them efficiently. They did go away, as did perhaps untold others. Whatever tapes survivor producer Mark Burnett has or has burned, they haven't surfaced. They haven't been loosed upon the world. Burnett's box has a tighter lid than Pandora's. In this instance, and I would argue many others, Trump benefited from tight control, not chaos. So I wonder to what extent Donald Trump really reaps the chaos. It is always there around him, more so than any other candidate. And he has successes that seem inexplicable. So, inexplicable success plus unprecedented chaos, it must be that the chaos leads to the success. Really? Does the dirt help Pigpen or just surround him? Trump has a similar force field. It is chaos. But does he control it? Or is it like another kind of gravitational phenomenon, a black hole? And maybe that's how Trump's chaos will play out. It will collapse unto itself. We already know that no light escapes from him. Of course, Stephen Hawking once doubted the existence of black holes. I'm less of a political forecaster than Stephen Hawking was an astrophysicist. So what do I know? The idea could be that Trump allows wounds to fester, ugliness to play out, disorder to reign, and he, through rhetoric, could convince people that he alone can fix it. Or, you know what? Maybe not. Maybe people will remember, wait, he said that once already. Maybe the message will backfire. Maybe people will just feel agitated, and you usually punish an incumbent during periods of agitation. Maybe the message will totally be ignored. Maybe the public will agree with Joe Biden's counter-message that the responsibility, of course, lies with the leader in office, not the challenger whose hands aren't on the levers of power. There are so many possibilities, so many outcomes. The different timelines will converge on one result or another, but the paths to get there seem infinite and somewhat chaotic. And that's the final reason 
we may be convincing ourselves without sufficient evidence that Trump benefits from chaos. Because Trump has benefited and because the world is chaotic. There is not just Trumpism, but so much going on that's chaotic, from Brexit to QAnon to worldwide populism, election interference, protests that broke us out of a pandemic. So we throw up our hands and we say, chaos, it's all chaos. And there, gingerly, mincingly, stepping out of the smoke and disorder is this guy with a ridiculous haircut and too long of a necktie. He's the chaos candidate, the chaos incumbent, but also maybe a chaos casualty. And that's it for today's show. To just producer Margaret Kelly, I say, You are capable! To Daniel Schrader, just producer, I intone, You are qualified! But that said, those two could be pretty sneaky. And with that in mind, I have this warning for our executive producer of Slate Podcasts, Alicia Montgomery. Don't let them kill future generations because they told you and brainwashed you and fed you lies that you weren't good enough. The gist. You know, if the Hatch Act goes unpunished, there is no hope for the subsequent here's a who act. I fear an entire branch of Horton Prudence will be left to wither on the vine. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.